0: Welcome, everyone, to the next episode of the Amplifier podcast. Today, I have Mr. Steve Whitehorn, the founder of Risk-Free Construction Solution. Steve has worked in the construction industry for more than 30 years, protecting his clients, solving their problems, and making their clients more successful. Have you ever had a construction project that's taken 20% longer or cost 20% more? Steve calls this 2020 vision why because it's what's expected it's what's now the norm in the construction industry steve's risk-free construction solution is like the uber of construction projects in essence you get uh you get in you get you get what you expect and um, and a lot more out of this process uh steve's provides greater predictability in the project's construction uh budget Schedule and quality. Risk-free construction is targeted to help uh, and focused on higher education, nonprofit, and healthcare construction projects valued at least $20 million and larger. And Steve has a new book to help you learn about risk-free construction. And it's called Don't Get Screwed: How to Solve the Unsolvable in the Construction Industry. Steve, welcome to the show thanks, Don. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here. You know, this has been a conversation that we've been wanting to have for a while. And so uh, you've got a new book. It's about to launch as soon as uh, we uh, finish off your website and get everything rolling. And so this is uh th- this conversation is to share some of the deeper insights into what's wrong with construction and how risk-free construction solves it. So, Tell me, Steve, from your point of view, what's the issue with construction today?
1: Well, there are really three, three challenges, and these challenges have been going on for years and years and they just keep getting worse. I mean, there's a lack of quality, uh, there's a lack of productivity, and there is something called asymmetric information. In other words, what does the contractor truly know about the, the cost of price the price of materials and labor versus what they pass on to the owner. And you throw those things together, and what happens is there's this huge shift of leverage to the contract, where basically the contractor holds all the cards.
0: Right, I mean, you know, most, I mean, particularly in this space with nonprofits and health uh, healthcare construction, um, they probably don't have their own construction management sort of team. They are leaning into uh, getting the project designed, going through what people might consider the traditional tender process and then selecting a contractor and thinking they made the best choice when they hired a contractor
1: and they're gonna lead the way. Hmm. Yeah, that's what they think. But unfortunately, if you take a look over the last 10, 20, 30 years, it's just getting worse. I mean, the reality is, you know, a lot of these institutions, they do have their own teams, but the problem is they're not in the position to control the contractor or the CM. Right. And so what happens is when this shift in leverage occurs, basically the owner and the design team in all fairness, is at the mercy of the contractor. What are you gonna charge? How, is it, how long is it take? We're gonna make up this, we're gonna make up that. And there is this, imbalance between the stakeholders that occur all the time and ends up costing owners hundreds of millions of dollars a year, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, because the owner is not strategically planning the project out with the design team and strategically executing the construction through the contractor or CM by creating greater accountability and risk-free construction solution controls the design phase to make sure that the documents are as risk-free as possible or perfect as possible, which does not exist by the way, we all know that, okay? But also by the same token, making sure that we are able to guide the contractor through the construction process to make his project or his responsibility more predictable, less risky and more profitable. So at the end of the day from the construct the contractor's perspective, we're going to make their, their, their um, profit more predictable and we're going to lower the risk for everyone, everyone, everyone. Okay. The design team, which which would be very interesting, the design team, if you talk about the architect or engineer, they may or may not be happy with the process. But if we talk about the MEP, I can assure you if we show up at the end of design, they are not going to be happy. But that's where the vast majority of change of come from. Right. The vast majority. And especially if you're dealing with a project that is complicated or a project that is more than one story, mm-hmm. And so by controlling the process through design to make, make sure that the design is actually constructible. Before the contractor gets to the actual execution of construction, we are dramatically reducing the number of magnitude of change orders that are going to occur during construction. It's a lot less expensive to fix something with a pen or pencil than it is with a hammer, or it's a hell of a less expensive to fix it on paper than it is in the field. And so that's what we do. I mean, ch-
0: management of change in construction is is an, is a huge elephant in every project.
1: It's a a huge. Shelter. Shelter. Oh, huge elephant! You know what's it, what's interesting is <laughs> managing change is is really a challenge, and that's where owners really get taken advantage of. Because I said there were there were three components to the problem with the industry. Okay, number one is quality. Okay. Mm-hmm. Number two is a lack of productivity. And number three, in particular, when we talk about change and change management, it's about asymmetric information, right? A change order comes up, it's $100,000. The contractor says, you want us something, it's really gonna be $200,000. It's gonna affect not only the cost, but the schedule, right? And so the owner is in a position where the contractors can say to the owner, look, if you want us to make this change, it costs you 200 grand, what do you want to do, okay? So by dramatically, reducing the number of change orders that occur up front, we can put the owner in a much stronger position to negotiate those change orders, but there's another component to it as well. And that's what I call the the, uh, the black box, right? Um, you know, the owner, the, the contractor can charge whatever they want to set their whim. And in fact, you know, they've been trained for years and years to charge as much as they can possibly get away. I understand that. I mean, we're all, trying to maximize her profitability. But to give an example, um, my little one had to get an MRI a couple of weeks ago, okay? And she's an awesome, awesome young lady, she's amazing. Anyway, so she goes to the hospital, right? So she gets her MRI done and she was a champ. She sat there for an hour and she actually had to get two of them, so two in a row. So she sat there for two hours and then the hospital sent the bill to the insurance company. Yes. And the insurance company, the, the, the insurance comp, the, me, the insurance, the hospital was a hospital building insurance company, $3,700. Okay. How much do you think the pre-negotiated rate was for the insurance company to pay the hospital? I have no idea. So $385. That was the actual cost. Of oh, the, the value MRI. that was provided, but meanwhile, the, the hospital charged thirty seven hundred dollars. Wow, that's that's an extreme example, but that's actually what happens, you know. Right. Because if you're caught between a rock and a hard place, and you want something, and you need change, what are you going to do? You're going to pay for it, or you're going to end up in litigation. Well, yeah, it was part of the base service, part of the you know. So we dramatically reduced anything that could possibly happen by as much as 85% up front, because the other 15%, it's not cost-effective to go after them. Could we? Yes, but it's not cost-effective. And so we're able to basically create a situation where the design is truly suitable for construction. And then using our technology, which we'll get into in a moment, using our technology we are optimizing the sequencing of construction. So we are dramatically improving the productivity of the contractor. We've dramatically reduced the number of change orders and we will dramatically reduce the schedule and improve any kind of uh, safety concerns or issues that would happen.
0: There's a lot baked in there, so I'm I'm going to have a lot of a lot of different follow-up questions.
1: A lot baked in there. You you want something? It's. I will say this. You know, people think that if they're going to, you know, renovate the house, the first thing they do is they call a contractor. No, 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 no. no. First thing you do is you call an architect. Right? You have to plan it out. What we're doing is we're planning out the design and construction process from start to end and then actually we're handing over an extremely valuable asset to the owner which they can use for operation maintenance which we'll get to. So go. Okay. There's a, there's
0: there's lots baked in there. Um you know I work in the industrial construction space which is not what your tool is currently designed for but you know all the same parallels. And you know on the construction side what I often see when it's a greenfield construction Clients will start and they'll start releasing construction packages when the architects, the designers are 30% complete, Oh, right? Oh. And, oh. and so they start laying oh. foundations and they start putting out contracts for heavy equipment, for steel, they start doing fabricating and, uh, and it you know, and it's like 30% of the, of the information is available, but you know, maybe it's 70 or 80% of the early works or the undergrounds are ready, but, all of a sudden, as you get into the project, change and schedule delay and oh, yeah. and materials delivery all get you know it's you know it's it's like the butterfly effect, right? that those things you do early in the project have such a tsunami effect as the project goes on that it's incredible. Um, and you speaking of house renovations, I had this experience with with roofing contractors over the last three weeks. So we're in the process of doing several micro projects in our home. We needed to do the roof. We did the AC. We we've replaced all the AC uh, HVAC system in the house earlier this year. Now we're moving on to the kitchen, and then we're going to do an expansion. <clears throat> all these pieces, I'm designing first, uh, one piece at a time, and then and then go into to construction. Well, the roof was pretty straightforward. It was just replacing kind five roofing contractors came out to look at it, <clears throat> gave, start giving me pricing. And four of them <clears throat> had all sorts of conditional bids. This isn't included, this isn't included, this isn't included. We recommend this upgrade to this new material. And, and so some of them came in with really low bids and some of them came in with you know uh, a whole bunch of recommendations on change uh, you know, changing of materials and design. And, and I just sort of normalized it all. And I said, here's what I want. And, you know, and it came back to a couple of them dropped out because they couldn't get their 30, 40% premium on their, on, on change. And the roof got done by, uh, by a gentleman and his team who just said, I want, you know, his words were, I want no hassle roofing was his whole thing. You know exactly what you're going to get. We're going to come. We're going to do it in a day or two, and we're going to be gone, and you won't even know we were here. And that's exactly what happened. But the uh, the the, uh, the bidding process from all the contractors, I could spot who were going to be um, who I was going to have a whole bunch of change management conversations with if I worked with them. <laughs> oh, because, oh, absolutely. Because I mean- their, their, their bids were intentionally designed to trigger change if I asked for anything?
1: Uh, You know, I always say this, uh, it's kind of Benjamin Franklin's quote, but I kind of adopted it. Mm -hmm. There are only three things in life you can guarantee, death, taxes, and change in a construction project. (laughs) When when there is change, that's danger. That is danger. That's when errors could happen from the design side. That's when the contractors or subs have the opportunity to overcharge, right? Because they got you, they got you, you know, you need it, you want it. And so the ideal scenario is when I say to our design clients, start designing with the end in mind, it has to go all the way through. Same thing with the construction process start constructing with the end in mind. And so we are using our technology, which we, we call our technology Merlin, okay? Yep. Um, Merlin is the all-knowing, mind-reading, future-telling advisor as to what the future holds. You know, um, uh, the legend of King Arthur, right? Yeah. It's like going on a first date, but knowing the outcome before you even leave the house. So from the design perspective, if they're releasing, like in your situation, at least in packages of 30% and then 60% and God forbid, they're fabricating steel. We had a situation come up like two or three years ago when the cost of steel was going up dramatically. And so it was a major institution. It was like a $70 million project. They wanted to have the, the steel fabricated before the design was complete. They weren't even in CDs. They were still in, toward the end of design development. And I'm like, whoa, you can't do that because God forbid there's one little change or there's a shift, then all of a sudden you could be blowing through hundreds of thousands of dollars of additional cost. So at the end of the day, it's like, yes we wanna make sure the documents are fully baked from a design perspective. We wanna make sure that the documents are fully baked from a constructability perspective. And that way we're able to create greater predictability from the owner's perspective. And at the same time, reduce everyone's risk. Yeah.
0: Tell me why you are tired of your clients getting sued in
1: construction projects. <laughs> okay. So, Oh God, it's horrible. It's always about money. All right. my our core business, I'm going to say our core business, our original business, um, We specialize in professional liability insurance and practice and risk management solutions for architectural firms and engineering firms. Our clients design everything. Our typical clientele is between uh, uh, 25 and 250 employees. So they're designing projects that are not little house renovations. They're designing projects at a minimum of a million dollar renovation minimum. I mean, I would say the average is anywhere from five million to two and a half billion, literally two and a half billion. Um, 50 million, 100, 100 million, 200 million, that's like every day, right? right. Yep. And it's always about money. Change comes up. Let me say this, Don, you know this, from your perspective, what happens to the owner's budget at the end of the project?
0: It, it, you know, well, They hope it, it, they stay within budget,
1: but it, but it grows. Oh, right. The budget grows, but they've blown the budget. There's never any yep. money. Yep. It's because the contractor keeps dinging them. The owner would change, change, change. And so they're out of money. So there's all the stress and anxiety. And there's a difference in motivation between the design team and the construction team. The design team's motivation is about quality, quality. The construction team's motivation is about money and profit. So when a change comes up, and even if it's a great area, they're going to throw a change order out there and they're going to want the owner to pay for it. The owner is going to say, I'm not going to pay for it. And the, and the contractor say, I'm not going to do this. And so it gets into this very tense situation. So what happens is if they are appropriate change orders or even non appropriate, somehow they morph into why that was actually an error or omission by the architect or engineers. Right. So right. The owner's problem or the contractor's, the owner's problem because the owner can't control the contractor, the contractor's problem or the owner's problem becomes the design team's problem. Gotcha. And our clients get sued, they get sued. And by the way, I would say in in all fairness, in all fairness, I would say 5% of the time, a client made a mistake, maybe 3% of the time, but the vast majority, is about someone trying to make their problem our, our client's problem, and I'm just. Sick you of-
0: saying that could be the owner. That could be the contractor pushing it back to the
1: design firm.
0: Right. Let's assume, let's
1: assume. Yeah. Let's let's assume. For example, there's a. I'm, I'm going to give you two examples using the same example, but change just change a couple one of the assumptions. So the contractor sues the owner for a change order four hundred thousand dollars. Okay. The contractor only gets 200,000, so the contractor in some states can sue the design team for the extra 200,000 dollars. Right. Okay. Uh, or let's assume the opposite situation. Um, the owner is sued for400,000 dollars by the contractor, and the owner has to pay the 400,000 dollars. Well now the owner could then turn to the design team and say, "You want to something because you guys made a mistake." I mean, it's just like a slippery slope in every which direction. And so what happens is when the design team or architect or engineers, they get sued. The only reason why they get sued is because they have deep pockets. Mm -hmm. They are the only ones with insurance that would actually fund a change or fund a construction error that was actually made by a contract by the, you know, by the GC or the subs where the owner doesn't have any money. Right. So they're involved, they're involved. And it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And that's why that kind of insurance is so expensive. And quite frankly, if, if it were like a widget, I'd be doing something else for a living, right?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, you you're in that business, because there's obviously a need, right?
1: Well, yeah, but you know, what's interesting, I fell into the business by accident. Um, I was supposed to go to Wall Street, but I actually just I felt, I, I graduated college in May of 88 and October of 87. Um, there was a stock market and bond market crash. And um, I'd worked in Wall Street for Christmas and summer holidays during college. And I was supposed to trade corporate bonds, but everyone knew it got fired. So right. I just kind of fell into this and I just loved it. I, I love the idea of building something. I love the idea of going from, Something that's designed on paper to something that's actually real and concrete that has a lasting legacy Mm -hmm. in terms of how it's being used and you know, in in its community, all this kind of stuff. Um, so I got hooked on construction, but as time went on, it started getting more and the more I learned, it got it kept getting more and more frustrating, more and more frustrating. So I had to come up with a solution that would help my clients, the the design teams, the architects and engineers, Mm -hmm. would help the owners because they're just a sitting target. And at the same time, help the contractors as well in order to create the sense of equilibrium so that everyone can win and no one's at a disadvantage. And it's not gonna be perfect. I know it's called risk-free. You know, the risk is the human element, right? Yeah, always risk. is. That's, that's the risk. But when it comes to technology, technology is way more predictable than experience and intuition. Yep. And so if we talk about the technology that we're using and so forth and so on, I could talk about that. But if we're using technology to help guide the design process, actually the bidding process, which is another issue, and then the construction process, the likelihood of having a, improving the success, like successful outcome dramatically improves.
0: There's a, there's an interesting dynamic here. I mean, in my industrial contracting business, we are almost always a sub contractor to a general contractor who works underneath a construction management firm, who's mm-hmm. taking, you know, design from, yep. so there's, there, there's an awful lot of moving parts in in all construction between contractor, owner, designer, and then of course, all the subs. What do you think the culture is in
1: the construction industry today? Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a trick question, right? The cult, this is what I believe. And, and you know, I'm, I'm gonna sound belligerent and, 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 and if anyone downloads my book, uh, don't get screwed, how to solve the unsolvable, you will see that my voice is very belligerent. And, and I do put a footnote in there saying that, you know, I'm overstepping my bounds because the reality is um, the GC is at the mercy of his subs. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, they need him to get the work done. They need to do the work. They need to get on the next project, right? So, <clears throat> but but the reality is The I would say the culture on the construction, I'm going to talk about the construction side has becoming more and more ruthless. I mean, there are hundreds and hundreds of classes across the country every year that teach contractors how to maximize profitability and on change orders. Okay, this has gotten worse. But the reality is, you know, I've been in in the industry for 30 years and I've seen it got worse on both sides. and the reality is, you know, if, if someone grew up in the construction world, the culture was to charge as much as you can. And like my dad was a Yankees fan. I'm a Yankees fan. So I'm a Yankees fan. Well, you know, your dad was a contractor, you're a contractor and you're going to follow the same culture. That's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And, but the challenge has been with the exception of the, the ultimate equalizer, which is the technology that we're talking about, you know, the service, what we do, um, it has only gotten worse and worse and it will never get better until someone comes up with a solution to create parity amongst the stakeholders. You know, think of it this way. Um, you used to go to You want to get a car you can't afford a new car so you get a a used car right you had no idea what the value that car was you had no idea if the car was ever in an accident you have no idea if mechanically it's sound right well now you have carfax it's the great equalizer you know you were going to go and get i don't know you're going to buy a radio or not a radio today very few people listen to radios but you know you're going to get Some sort of audio
0: system that has... Some kind of audio system,
1: right? (laughs) So now what you can do is you could go down to your local store and say, okay, I want that audio system. It's going to cost $700. But now you go on Amazon, the great equalizer, to say the least, it's $475 and free shipping. The great equalizer is technology. There are very few, very few industries left that I can think of that has not been changed or altered, destructive, what do they call it, Don? What's that word? Creative destruction? Creative destruction, transformation. Transformation. Disruption. Disruption, thank you. That's right. that's exactly. Disruption. There are very few industries, especially significant industries, that have not gone through disruption. Construction in particular, not design, because yeah. they're using technology all the time, but construction is one of the most large one of the largest industries in the world, and has not gone through that transformation. And so risk-free construction solutions actually bring that technology to the forefront for owners to harness the technology for design teams, whether they like it or not, to harness the technology, which will lower the risk, and for contractors to harness Mm -hmm. the technology, because it will reduce their cost by up to 15% reduce the schedule by up to 15% reduce the risk and make the profit more predictable
0: well and I, you know as a contractor i could say and and as i said earlier we're almost always a subcontractor and for all the subcontractors who hear this like generally speaking when you're a subcontractor you don't have the same level of sophistication of Uh, change management that the GC has and so you are outgunned an awful lot of the times I mean I train my people how to just make sure we're clear on what's included in our in our proposals and what's not so that there are no there's no misalignment of expectations because once the project starts uh, subcontractors uh, can have a tough time with management of change just like everybody else
1: They can, um, but what's gonna happen, at least what we will provide, is we will provide clarity in terms of what is really required from a materials perspective for for subs. So we're gonna create much greater clarity. So we're gonna reduce the risk that you're gonna have a scope bust, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, that happens all the time. And then a con- oh, yeah. I've stuff. got an example
0: I'll share in a minute, you know, and it's about risk. You know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, when we're talking about risk in construction, we're talking about people. People either sharing or not sharing information, people either deciding to or not to, uh, to uh, own and take accountability for change that they may or may not create. And uh, I, I think this is key to making. I mean, if you can create transparency and alignment to de-risk the uh, people's interpretations in a project, um, you will you will leap you will leapfrog the construction industry ten years ahead of where it is today for sure.
1: Yeah. Well, you know what's going to happen is you know the technology gives the ability to count to count quantities, mm-hmm. right? before it actually goes out to bid. So if you're a sub, right? And you're a um, a mechanical guy, right? And you need duct work, we're gonna make sure that you know exactly how much duct work you need to order. And size wise too.
0: Because- We had a a project, um, you know, talking about steel. We had a project uh, about 18 months ago and the, the the owner had rushed the bidding process to the general contractors. The general contractors were bidding the project. And one of the activities was cutting pipe, heavy wall pipe. And uh, we put in a request for information on like, what kind of, you know, how do you want this cut? And what was the way it was gonna be beveled for, for welding? And they came back, yeah, just use your standard. So it's not going to be anything special. going to be a standard so we went back and said so you know what we call a 3710 bevel profile and the guys they they said yep great so that for that particular piece of size of piping and thickness that was a two-hour crew activity well as soon as they got the project started that changed to this special automatic welding process um, and it changed the bevel detail to a three-step process. One had to happen after each other. Each step was two hours. It's now a six-hour activity for, for the same. And, you know, and there was 20 or 30 of these to do. And, uh, you know, and, and then all of a sudden, it's instead of the, the bidding people uh, and the contracts people involved, it was some site superintendent to just just get it done. And uh, at the end of the project, you know, the, the superintendent who said, just get it done, uh was gone nowhere 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 to be found and nowhere nowhere to uh capture his his uh direction and then we had to deal with the uh the owner and the general contractor whose interpretation was that we couldn't we couldn't meet the schedule well they increased the schedule threefold but you know between the owner and the general contractor there was no dialogue
1: there was no dialogue Right. yeah you know so that hap- that happens
0: every day on construction sites between those different groups right between design owners GCs CMs subs and 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 the risk is always in you know some someone says do it or don't do it and then the cascading effect tends to be you know big negotiations on change after the fact
1: yeah and that that Can be a very contentious it it is a very contentious situation it happens all the time but that's why it's really important that design the design is fully baked yeah we need to be exact and and the owner needs to understand the implications of change during construction they have to hold back and it's very difficult for them you know to sit in their hands and say i need to resist change I need to resist change, because if there is change, there could be dramatic consequences. Could be uh, help, you know, HSW situation, health, safety, welfare. Yeah. Could be a schedule issue. Definitely could be a cost issue. Uh, that's why we also have a cost estimator uh, on our team. So you know, the contractor comes up with a, a, a change order, and let's assume it's legitimate. We want to make sure that, you know, the owner is not at the mercy of the black box, like that MRI I was talking about earlier. Yeah. You know, we want to make sure that it's legitimate and appropriate. Now, certainly, you know, the contract is entitled to um, um, to an upcharge, right? Because it, it affects their their resources, their staffing and, and schedule and everything else, um, but, you know, reasonable. And so the idea is not to create perfection here because there's nothing it, Nothing in construction or design is perfect, mm-hmm. nor in life, in fact. But the idea is to, the idea actually is, you know, 20% of contractors out there are really builders. I mean, they're builders, like old time builders. They're good. They know their stuff and they can build from, you know, they build with the end in mind, right? There's 80% that are okay at best. And so if we can move 60% of those, of that group, To the top 20% using technology, that's a win. That's a huge win for everyone, the contractor, the design team, and especially the owner.
0: Tell me about why you feel the
1: construction industry is deceptive. Well, you know, it's, it's deceptive in many ways. Okay. Uh, you know, I was just thinking about this example the other day, right? We did uh, we, was, we did a I live in a hundred year old center hall colonial. About fifteen years ago, we, we restored it and uh, we put an addition on the back. Okay, and <clears throat> the electrical contractor who was a sub to the GC, um, I said to the GC and actually to the contractor, you know, I want dimmers here instead of just regular switches. There are twenty of them. Okay and he said fine so he put him in then he sent me a bill for 550 dollars now he gave me the same brand dimmer that it was for the switch the only difference for the per switch was four dollars so he should have sent me a bill for eighty dollars yes. yeah and i got him on the phone and he said and i said you know i looked on the internet i don't know where probably amazon right like everyone else And I said, you know, this switch is, is $20, this switch is $24. And so you should be giving me a bill, $4 per unit, 20 units, $80. And the bill was like $520 or $550. I said, well, I'm a businessman. I said, but it takes as much labor to put one switch in as opposed to the other. And you had not put the first switch in. Yeah. This
0: wasn't change after it's been done.
1: No, 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 no. Change after it's done. I mean, there's some legitimacy to additional cost because you have to pull out what was put in and then you put something else in. That's different. So, you know, and that's kind of an extreme example. We're not talking, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but there's deception everywhere. It's like the black box, you know, deception from the perspective of, and now I'm going to talk about, deception. I'm going to talk about the construction side. Okay. Mm -hmm. And some contracts may feel that design firms could be deceptive in certain ways as well. Right. But so I'm just going to talk about the construction because I've been hit, I've been dinged every once in a while and I'm even in this business. Right. So, so I have a um, um, uh, cost plus CM, right. We uh, restored our office a couple of years ago, cost plus, we need a new roof. The roof was uh, twelve thousand dollars, and if there was any bad, if there's any bad um, plywood, uh, they wanted four dollars a square foot. Okay, this is when a, a, a sheet of plywood was six dollars and fifty cents a sheet. Yeah. Right, and and I pointed out to the to the CM who who was a friend of mine. Was a friend of mine. I pointed mm-hmm. out and said, look, you know, he wants $4 a square foot, but you want something that's only six and a half dollars a sheet, a sheet. And we're not talking about a big area, right? It's only 900 square feet. He's said, okay, yep. I'll take care of that, right? So he supposedly took care of it. And then, of course, at the end of the day, I got the bill and he charged me an extra $2,000 for like two sheets of plywood. Yep. So I go back to the guy, say, well, and say, and this is the typical thing that, you're, that all owners hear. I went back to the guy, my former friend, and I said, You said you're gonna take care of it. And you know what his response was? What? Yeah, doesn't it look great though? So I'm gonna the darn thing. Right. It's like you're at as an owner, you're at the mercy of the contractor yeah. and their subs. And I can give you other examples of stuff like oh, that's happened that. Well
0: like no, I, I had the, this example is is poignant, Steve, because I had this topic come up when I was dealing with my roof just last week. Yeah. The the guy who did my roof, he said, I'm including two sheets of plywood and the square footage uh, in my price. Anything more than that, it's X dollars per sheet. And it was around, um, I think his extra fee for above two sheets was was $200 or something. And,
1: you know, A a sheet. That's a lot of money. Even at the height, see in the U.S., You know, recently, within the last, I don't know, three months, uh, a sheet of plywood was like $65. Yeah.
0: Well, I I haven't looked what it's been the last couple of months. I mean, in the summer, it was here in Canada. uh, These are Canadian dollars I'm talking about. It was like, you know, sheets of plywood were going for about $100 a sheet.
1: Oh, wow. Um, I I like Canadian dollars (laughs) as an American.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. As an American. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're on on the right side of that equation. I hear you. Um, but, you know, a couple of the other people who put in prices saying replacement of plywood on the roof deck is not included, and it was $250 a sheet um, from from the first, you know, first square foot that they want. And if they had to replace one square foot of roofing uh, of the deck on the roof, they wanted to charge me for a full sheet of plywood. That's and true. so, yeah, so they, you know and, you know, my roof was new. I didn't, I actually didn't need any, but... From a risk mitigation standpoint, I was pretty confident that wasn't going to need much if, if I needed any. But um, one 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 group included two sheets, and was only going to charge if there was more than that at two hundred dollars a sheet. And the uh, two of the other groups included none, and we're going to charge two hundred fifty dollars. And they were going to charge me for a full sheet, even if they needed just, you know, one section of roof needed a one foot by three foot section. I was paying for a full sheet of plywood. Where's that? Yeah. Where's the rest of that plywood going? In their truck. There right. I,
1: yeah. On the next job. But, you yeah. know, but, but you talked about, you asked about deception. Deception rears its ugly head in many different ways. It can, you know, just like what you're talking about, had you not really dug into that contract, the different contracts, and you know what you're doing, you know what you're looking for. And I I know what I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And I saw it. And still I got the response, well, doesn't it look great? Yeah. Right? Um, Imagine what owners go through on a project that's $50 million. Yeah. I mean, there
0: are a thousand issues like light switches and sheets of plywood that they don't even have the time wherewithal the wherewithal to to manage those 2000 items that each of them add 50 to 500 to five thousand dollars each time there's something you know change like that and they don't don't even they don't even they don't even necessarily have the sequencing capability to go well you know i'm not even changing out those light switches i'm
1: just changing the spec before you put them in Right? Yeah, no, absolutely. But you know, the, the challenge is most owners, even in large institutional owners, they really don't have the resources to dig down, to really find out, if, are they being deceived or not if something happens? Because there's always something that's gonna happen. There's right. always change in construction. And you know, minor change should be, in my opinion, you know just go with it and leave it alone. But if there's a major change, you know, there should be more clear ground rules as to what will happen in the event of change. And so, I mean, in my book, I talk about, you know, a contractor um, intentionally, intentionally left out the panels in, uh in dance halls knowing that the panels were going to go in right intentionally left them out um the owner of of like a world famous concert hall world famous concert hall um the owner did not want to show the contract of construction between the owner and the contractor to the architect who may have caught it and so, you know, they're finishing up the uh, they're finishing up these dance halls and I don't know how many of them, but there are a lot of them. And the panel should have cost $2 million. They don't have to cost $3,750,000. Almost twice as much as what they should have because the owner would have known and the architect would have known that those should have been put in, in place. Right. The outset should have been competitively bid. That's when the owner actually has the most leverage to negotiate the terms of a construction project during bid because competitively bid. But once, but in the olden days or the, the way construction is being done now and the way it's been done the last 50 years, once construction begins and the train has lost, left the station, all the shift, all the leverage goes to the contractor and I'm tired of seeing it, but we have a solution and we have a, excellent solution. We're
0: going to dive into your solution after you answer two more questions for me. Sure. Sure. I want to dive into this. So you're talking about, I mean, what I experience in my own space are there are, you know, this deceptive strategy. There's a strategy by some contractors to be the lowest bidder by qualifying out, things that they know need to be done and that will end up having to get pulled back in later and in your case it was leaving out leaving out panels in a dance hall knowing that it had to go in but excluding it from their bid you know i would assume to make their bid look more attractive
1: very interesting
0: so 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 why should owners not uh select the lowest bidder
1: well, first of all, let me kind of address the first the first thing, okay? Yeah. In our program, we want to guarantee cost, no contingencies, yeah. right? Because well, in the States, let, let, me, let me take a step back, okay? In the States, if it's a government project, municipal project, whatever it is, it has to be low bid. Mm-hmm. However, if it's going to be a low bid project, because they, they always have to select the most qualified low bid, okay? So, there are going to be no contingencies. And if there are contingencies, it has to be recognized that the contingency fund belongs to the owner, not the contractors or the subs. So, we have very specific, very specific contractual provisions that go into the contract between the owner and the design team. And we have even more specific uh, language that goes into the contract between the owner and the contractor, because we want to make very clear that the design team knows what they're signing up for. We want to make it very clear that the contractor knows what they're signing up for and that they have to follow the protocols in the process that we establish up front. They're going to sign off of it before they execute the construction, but it has to be very clear with a very strong sense of clarity that each stakeholder understands what the rules are. Okay. And you know, the problem is, um, no one really knows what the rules are until the contractor starts building and then they start changing the rules and then you never really know what the rules are because they keep changing. So, you know, the idea is we want to make the rules um, uh, transparent, but it's mm-hmm. also important that each stakeholder knows what the process is from design through bidding through construction so that everyone's at the same page because everyone benefits from that. Yep. Okay. I'm sorry. What was the, the, there was really a second part and I, uh,
0: well, it was really about why, why shouldn't owners quickly select the or automatically select the low bid.
1: Okay. Because Okay, and, and the best way the, the, the best way to really articulate that is to take, you know, um, public projects in the U.S. That's the best way because, once again, um, if it's a public project, government project, municipal project, has to go to the low bid. You see, what happens is the contractors bid to get selected as the low bid, and what ultimately happens is the contractors and subs will find out a way to make up for the paper loss from their bid. And what happens is it becomes a contentious situation. And for a lot of contractors that do uh, work and subs in in the public sector, um, part of their business model is litigation and to intimidate owners. And so... You know, you don't always have to go with the high bid. You should almost never go with a low bid. But, you know, the question is, what is reasonable? What is appropriate? And what is the culture of the GC and hopefully their subs? And most of the time, in fact, you know, when when a GC bids on a project, they don't even know who their subs are. Sure. A lot of times, you know, they'll fill in who the subs are after the fact. And yep. that's also a very important component to the quality of the team. So we we will track very specifically who is the GC, who are the subs, who are the people who are in charge of each discipline. And we have something called a stakeholder scorecard at the end of the project. And so we will have the design team rate, the contractors and subs, and we in effect will rate the same both on the design side of the construction team, and we'll also have the contractors rate the design team. It's like an Uber, right? You get an Uber. I don't know what my score is. Hold on a second. Let me tell you what my Uber score is for a mo- moment. Sure. But you know, I remember. Um, okay, so so it's like your Uber rate, right? So, okay, my Uber rating right now is four point eight one. Okay, it's not perfection. Sure. And most of my Uber rides in the last five years have been really good. But <clears throat> I flew to Germany about three and a half years ago in an effort to help solve this issue or come up with our solution. And when I was, I was there for a day and when I was leaving, I took a, a, an Uber car back to the, the, um, the airport. Happened to be a Mercedes because every car there is a Mercedes, right? This Perfect. guy was the worst, the worst Uber driver I, I could ever tell you. It was like really hot out and he had the heat on. He would not open the windows. So the heat's blasting. It's like 93 degrees out Fahrenheit and he won't open the windows. And I'm very upset. I'm very Perfect. upset. So anyway, so my Uber rating dropped to 4.3, but over that period of time, it's gone up, right? But the reality is we want transparency. The owner wants transparency in terms of who's the architect gonna be, who are the engineers gonna be, you know, the MEP, the structural civil. The owner wants to know who's the GC gonna be, who's gonna run it, who's the mechanical guy, who's the plumbing guy, who's the framing guy, who's the foundation guy. And we're gonna track this through time because ultimately what we wanna do is we wanna make that owner's future project more successful than the last one, and then we want to make that owner's third project more successful than a second. And the only way we can do that is to keep score. Yeah I
0: totally totally get it. love the idea. <clears throat> you know it would be it would be fantastic if all construction organizations could go to a source and say, you know, here are the here are the people we're considering to be the mechanical leads on this project. Like where do they stack up in their last five projects? From yeah, it's, kind of, it's kind of
1: course. like, you know, what's your credit score? Right? Yeah, no, I get it. And it. and you know, and the difference between a good sub and a bad sub is the guy who's running the show. Mm-hmm. I remember years ago, uh our client, Bolin Sowinski, um nationally recognized, internationally recognized architectural firm. They did a project in uh, Harrisburg. It was a Harrisburg government building 20 years ago. It was $120 million. That was a huge project, 120, million, 120 years ago. So the principal in charge, I remember talking to him. He's like, yeah, how'd the project go? He said, well, it was okay. He said, but you know, 20 years ago, all we needed were 60 sheets of drawings and 100 RFIs. That's what we'd have gotten. Mm -hmm. Well, we produced 200 set of drawings and we had a thousand RFIs and it's just getting worse and worse and worse. The pendulum keeps swinging. It's like, you know, the contractors, the subs they want more information, more information, more information. Well, they're not builders, they're contractors. That's the difference. They're not builders or contractors. And and it's, uh, it's very frustrating, but we at risk-free construction, we are providing the information. That they're asking for because it's highly detailed and very accurate in order to make their job perfect. Well, easier, but the reality is there's that human element. So if you have a, if you have, you know, you have a sub and you have someone that really knows what they're doing, that discipline will go really well. If you know when you're in another project and it's the same company, they have a different guy, it could go sideways and it could be a huge problem. It just depends upon the human element. And that's something that's why,
0: you know, what I hear from most of my clients is they value strong supervision over almost everything else. And I think it well, and because super, you know, strong supervision makes the project go well, but it's almost always because the project plan isn't, you know, isn't where it needs to be. So they need that strong supervisor because they don't have all the i's dotted and t's crossed in terms of in terms of design and in terms of the plan in terms of the schedule in terms of you know you know you know planning out as much of that change as possible
1: yeah and and that's what we do we provide clarity and transparency about what that plan is and how the contractor is going to execute the plan now Some of the subs may not be on the same page. And so what's going to happen is things are going to happen and there are going to be change orders. And the only reason why the change orders of any magnitude is because the sub didn't follow the plan. Yeah. And that can happen. But I believe over time, once we are developing a greater critical mass that we have already, I believe that the GCs and CMs doesn't necessarily mean you need a CM on this, um, but I believe the GCs will actually feel like we are bringing them into the future to make their business model more predictable and more successful. Right. So let's um,
0: let's get underneath the hood a little bit. What is risk-free construction then? What what is it? What is it you're doing?
1: Risk-free construction solution. Well, what we're really doing is: um, Do you want to get under the hood, or do you want me to talk globally, and then I'll go under the hood with you? Whatever way
0: you'd like. Just kind All of right, let me, help let, us help let me us understand real... what risk-free the risk-free construction solution is. Okay. So whatever so whatever you whatever is the best way to. Uh, get the audience to kind of
1: get their head around. Absolutely. Okay, so think of of a construction project. All right? Okay, you you see your project, you kind of envision it. Now, think about this way. In the olden days, if you wanted a cab, you had to call the cab company They say 20 minutes. You hope they show up in 20 minutes or show up at all. You get in the car, you don't know where you're going, you don't know how long it's gonna take, and you have no idea how much it's gonna cost. As you had mentioned earlier with that Uber example, with Uber, you know who's going to show up when they're going to show up. You know exactly where you're going. You know exactly how much how long it's going to take. And you know what's going to cost. And no surcharges. That's what risk-free construction solution does for construction projects. Now, great, great picture. I I can I can see that now, in my mind's eye. Now, once again, you know, you might hit bad weather, so things might slow down, right? You might have some of this human factor, and that is the part that is not risk-free, the human factor. Um, But basically, the program has six steps. It's a six-step process. And, you know, the first process, and I don't know if you want me to go through these, Don?
0: Yeah, yeah, at a high level. I mean, I've got them here in front of me, but I'd like you to share it with the audience.
1: Okay, sure. Okay, so at, at a high level, okay, the first step is called the viability assessment. Not every project is appropriate uh, for risk-free construction solution. Number one, the project might be too small, very possible. The project might be a fast track project. It might be a design build project. We have no interest in doing design build projects, um, but the viability assessment is really about assessing the project, assessing who the owner is. Do they have the technological capabilities to manage from an owner's perspective, the process? Okay. Do they have resources or people available to make decisions when decisions need to be made? One of the challenges I hear is that something comes up, the design team goes back to the owner and it takes them a month to make a decision. We can't have that. We want to make sure the process is as efficient and as effective as possible. So, um, so we're going to do analysis of the project, um, to see if it's a right fit, because if it's a right fit, great. If it's not, then, you're better served elsewhere. So the second stop, the second step, assuming it's an appropriate project, is what we call the predictability approach. And what that is is really at the outset setting standards for the design team. These are the standards we're looking for from the perspective of design. The MEPs are certain are, are used to designing in a certain way. Okay, diam- diagrammatically. That's not specific enough because that's when change orders come up. So we want to be very transparent about what the expectation is, because basically we specialize in making things fit. So we're gonna go through the design process with the design team, and we're gonna be holding the MEP's hand, going through the design to make sure at each milestone that we've hit appropriate milestones, especially for the mechanical system, okay? And then at some point in time, we're gonna do a, a sequencing analysis. First time at the end of design development. <clears throat> and we wanna make sure that number one, what is being designed is constructible. Number two, we wanna make sure that we're optimizing the sequencing to make it as effective as possible. Ultimately, ultimately, we to get down to CDs and we're gonna have our cost estimator get on, get, on, get on board in order to make sure that when we go out to bid, we're getting appropriate appropriate bids and tenders. <clears throat> and the people that we use are literally one of the best in the country. They're all over the world, but we're just going to be focusing on uh, North America, um, United States to begin with, and ultimately we'll probably go to North. Uh, <clears throat> but we have <clears throat> the resources in order to come up with very, uh, <clears throat> nothing's very accurate, but, but but highly accurate information to make sure that the tenders that we get back are appropriate, um, and then we go out to bid, and we're going to be involved with the bidding process. Um, we want to make sure that the contractors actually understand. We're going to give the we're going to give the contractors the model, okay? Because this is all being uh, developed in uh, in in uh, BIM, uh, <clears throat> and so um, we're going to. Um, so we're going to do a tender analysis to make sure number one, the bids are appropriate. Number two, we're going to make sure there aren't any holes in the bid, like that uh, example just, that I gave the panels. Missing panels, yeah. Oh, absolutely. This kind of stuff happens all the time. We want we want a guaranteed cost, okay? We don't want to open book because that's another another scam, so to speak. Um, uh, scam's the wrong word to use. I don't mean to say that, but, but we want a guaranteed cost with no contingencies. And if there are contingencies, it's recognized that contingencies are owned by the by the owner, because we want to make sure whatever the potential cost is for those contingencies that they're appropriate. And so that's what the cost estimator cost estimator there is for. Yep. And then we have the green light effect. We want to make sure everyone gets out gets off on the right foot, um, and that everyone is moving in the same direction. The fifth step is the sequencing advantage. Okay, the sequencing advantage is basically when the contractor starts to execute the sequencing that was developed during design and signed off by the GC, we want to make sure he follows the sequencing. And if there were any changes to the sequencing, it had to be done at the end of bidding, you know, if they were the, um, if they were the, um, the winning bid. Um, we are going to establish a digital twin during that process because we want to make sure we keep up with the progress of construction. Because using the technology, we can actually look at and anticipate potential changes that are going to occur up, up in the future. So, once again, it's easier to change it on paper than it is in the field. So we don't want them to put something in and have to rip it out. During the same time, we're going to be using um, what I consider our quality management strategies in order to create greater accountability from the contractor's perspective. We wanna make sure that we get submittals in the appropriate form. We wanna make sure that the RFIs that we're gonna get are appropriate. We wanna make sure that any substitution requests are complete and they are in the proper format. During that phase as well, during that phase, while the contractor is building, there is the possibility that we may have what we call our funding solution. Basically, the funding solution is an insurance policy that protects the owner from non-owner generated uh, changes. Um, because we wanna make sure that at the end of the day, we are limiting the owner's downside in the amount of the project goes sideways, which is certainly always a possibility. And then finally, uh, we... Um, we have the stakeholder scorecard, which I discussed earlier. In other words, we're going to, we and everyone else is going to assess specifically how, how do they do in terms of were they difficult to deal with, were they easy to deal with, were they competent, were they not competent, and that kind of thing. And then finally, you could say as a bonus feature, we are going to, once the, once the project is delivered to the owner, we are going to hand over the BIM model. To the owner as a very valuable asset to them, because at the end of the day, they will know exactly how the project was built, so they can as as built. This model is extremely rich with data, so that way the owner can maintain the building much more efficiently than prob- than the way they're doing it now, to say the least. You know, it's kind of like, oh, gee, I have a problem. This was done 20 years ago, and you go into a room and the whole whole room of documents you have no idea. You know, what's the most recent one? Is that document actually here? This model is unbelievably rich with information to help the owner manage the operations and and maintain the property.
0: Just having that digital twin with all the as-built baked in is priceless.
1: Yeah, and there are really two ways to go about doing that. It it is priceless. Um, There are really two ways to go about it. Um, we could do it the old fashioned way. Okay. You know, and then unfortunately, unfortunately this happens subcontractor at the end of the project takes out a piece of paper and he draws it out. Well, gee, well, you know, this pipe was supposed to be here, but now it's 24 inches over. He doesn't know that because it's behind a wall. That's one way to do it. Contractually as part of our addendum for the, on the, from the construction side, we are going to require each subcontractor to update the model once a week. Because this way, we know it is accurate. Now right. they, may not up, they may not update the model for it to be accurate, but it's electronic. So that's one way to do it. And so it'll be much more accurate than pen and paper, right? Or pencil right. and paper. The other way you can do it, and we have a number of clients that prefer this, is that before the sheetrock goes in, we scan, electronically scan each space. And that way, the information is ridiculously accurate between like one-eighth of an inch tolerance. Right. So that we get the exact location of each and every duct, pipe, piece of equipment, you name it. That is the best way to do it. However, it can be done if the, the contractor and the subs update the model once a week, but doing it by hand just, to, just to, does not do the process. Well, does just, not, you know, know, to, is, your,
0: to your point, if you walk into the, the vault of, of paper three years after the project, you're not even certain
1: if the as-built is in there. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, I mean, but literally this model is unbelievably rich of information on every spec on every, anything that was specced and what, you know, the performance criteria was for this component or that component. Um, it's, it's truly an unbelievably value asset. It would be valuable. It would be, it's highly valuable, even if it's only updated once a week, but it's ridiculously obscenely accurate. If we actually scan and it, doesn't take a lot of time so and not particularly cost prohibitive gotcha
0: steve um when people want to get your book
1: where do they go oh great idea yeah uh www. riskfreeconstruction.org now i'll say this we're not a nonprofit at least by choice but anyway riskfreeconstruction.org because we believe that we are going to change the face of the construction industry forever
0: fantastic steve his new book don't get screwed how to solve the unsolvable in the construction industry the risk-free construction solution steve always love talking to you pal thank you so much for coming on the
1: show don really appreciate it always good seeing you look forward to catching up
0: thanks again pal
1: You bet.